This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. It's Fun Friday. My name is Jeff Sandu. On last week's MSP, Matt Armitage thrilled us with a tale of swashbuckling misadventure and misspoken grammar. This week, we're heading further beyond the age of sanity to ask, whose robot are you? Should we assume that this is another one of those shows talking about our entire existence being a computer simulation and that the creator of our universe is actually a preteen working on a school computer project, Matt? That's a very specific example. <laughs> um, you've been thinking about this yeah, a lot, haven't you? Actually, yeah. I have. So, anyways, what's the point of all of this if we're only ones and zeros? Well, I'd probably point you in the direction of Rod Reese's Demimon series of books. Um, Simulations aren't actually what we're talking about today, by the way. But if it was, then your life still has as much meaning as it did before you actually realised it was a simulation. (laughs) It's not like pain or joy is any less real or when you broke your wrist, it hurt, right? (laughs) Or the taste of food. You know, it's very unlikely that we'll be in that kind of matrix type situation. Uh, I don't think anyone is holding our bodies prisoner while our minds have plunged into some fiction this is our existence it doesn't really matter if it's a simulation or not and i think it's probably as simple as that so why are we robots well this is building on from something we were talking about in last week's geek squawk now radio listeners will know that these shows msp and geek squawk are kind of a pair they come together um but i have had some of our podcast listeners tell me that they know about one show but not the other so both shows are me and jeff Uh, I get to wander off into fantasy realms and thought experiments on MSP, whereas on Geeks, we're a bit more grounded in the events of the week, um, looking at big or quirky stories from the world of tech and culture. All right, that's it for the cross-promotion. That's done now. So how does this follow up from last week's Geeks? Well, we were talking about the 10-year challenge and how that information can be used to train machine intelligence to identify, track, and even age humans more effectively. We also mentioned some other areas where we are inadvertently helping to train artificial intelligence. So you're being literal here. You're saying that we're actually robots. Well, not in a mechanical sense, but in the sense that we are often used as objects that are the possession of someone or something, which, of course, begs the question, whose robots are we? Who actually thinks that they own us? This is a very light and fluffy topic for a fun Friday. And that's why they call me Teddy Bear. (laughs) No one calls you Teddy Bear. I know, but you can't start these things until you put them out there, right? (laughs) Um, I'm going to paraphrase the American author, scholar and uh, professor emerita at Harvard Business School, Shazana Zuboff. Um, Now, she said... Uh, Once we thought of digital services as free, and now those digital service companies think of us as free. Oh, that's a little chilling. And that's why they call me Teddy Bear. Um, (laughs) No, but like Teddy Bear, it's really just about putting a name and an explanation to all the things that make us uncomfortable about the digital era. So we'll come back to Professor Zuboff later on, and more specifically the concept that she's been working on, which she calls surveillance capitalism. So amid the discomfort of all of this digital life, we've seen the first stirrings of uh, of anxiety in both the popular protests against establishment politicians and also the backlash that uh, many technology companies have faced over the last couple of years. So it's like that sixth sense or that itch you can't quite scratch. You know something is wrong, you know that something isn't the way you want it, but you don't quite know how to shape or vocalise those thoughts and doubts. What's that itch? 
Well, in your case, it's probably something that needs uh, urgent medical attention. Oh, God. But this is, uh, you know, this is one of those tropes that we come back to so often on the show. Uh, the scale of transformation that we've undergone in the last 20 years. We've seen all kinds of models that have stood for decades, if not hundreds or even thousands of years, being turned upside down since the millennium. We've seen information move out of buildings and books where it had to be painstakingly found and researched and cross-referenced. We can communicate instantly. We don't have to schedule phone calls or we don't have these slow exchanges of letters. Money zips around the world in seconds. You know, we don't spend half our free time schlepping around shops in different parts of town anymore. We just buy things online. Everything has gotten faster and, depending on the way you look at it, more convenient. You know, Matt, most people will argue that these are good changes. And they are. Uh, there are so many ways in which our world has improved, uh, and those improvements have been fueled by this rapid spread of technology. But so often we're happy to accept whatever shiny new service or app or startup disruption somebody hands to us. Uh, now, we've mentioned before... We've reached that point where the technology is too complex for us to grasp. You know, when I was a kid, you could open up the hood of your car and, you know, mm. there was an engine there. Mm. Today, there'll be some kind of protect protective cover over most of the engine, which is mainly there to stop you tinkering with it or trying to understand how it works. And so sometimes there's no engine at all. <laughs> well, precisely in the case of electric cars, yeah, yeah. So we're actively discouraged from understanding how things work. Well, you know, in the world that we know, uh, money is the currency. So we might not have a lot of it, but we can see it, we can touch it, and we want to find out where we can get more. In the new digital economy, which we'll actually talk a bit about in Geeks as well, information is the currency, data is information, and money derives from that information. So no, it isn't in the best interests of any information-gathering company to have us look too closely at how that data is generated, retained and used. So that lack of clarity and definition is a deliberate act? Well, it may not be deliberate. As soon as you start saying things like deliberate, you start <laughs> cooking up these conspiracy <laughs> theories. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that kind of theory isn't helpful because it becomes uh, insular and uh, self-defeating or even self-fulfilling. So what we have is a group of independent companies, independent actors, but these companies share a common goal. So I'd say it's probably more of a tacit understanding than it is any kind of direct agreement. Is this where that idea of surveillance capitalism comes in? Uh, thank you. I was wondering how I would box my way out of that corner <laughs> and get back to the, uh, the capitalism. So we'll get to um, the surveillance part, especially in a minute. So I'm still working through the concept myself, especially as I can't actually buy Professor Zuboff's book until the end of the month. Uh, it's called... The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Mm. It came out in the US last week, but my Kindle account is set to the UK, so I can only get hold of it at the end of uh, January. But one thing I definitely agree with her on is this idea she has about the need to identify and name what's happening in the world. I thought last week we determined that you don't care about the origins of terminology. Yes, and we found out that you think adamantine is the magic metal of the Marvel comics. Um, <laughs> so earlier I mentioned that we, we find it hard to keep up with the pace of change. Uh, it feels as though we're all lagging behind the technology. And part of that is down to the fact that we don't know exactly what it is that we're lagging behind. And that allows other people or companies to turn wild bets and assumptions into 
actual norms. And eventually those norms become laws or they become de facto behaviours that we all accept and follow. Oh, like the military term, truth on the ground. Yeah, exactly like that. So the last 20 years in terms of the behaviour of the new class of disruptive tech companies, especially those with a focus on data, has been an epic land grab uh, in many ways. And I think this is an analogy that Professor Zubov uses I can't actually quite remember. Uh, it's a bit like the behaviour of the European colonists. It's the idea of rushing out into the unknown and simply taking something and declaring it as your own. Isn't that just business? Well, yes, to an extent. And sorry, I'm a little bit vague with some of the stuff because, as I said, I haven't mm. read the book. So I'm getting a lot of the information from interviews with uh, Zuboff and from her columns in the German uh, news site Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, which uh, those columns are actually in English in case you're interested in reading them. There's a particularly good interview on The Guardian's website from last weekend. Uh, it's with uh, Professor Zuboff and another one of my favourite writers and technology voices, John Norton. So, yes, to an extent, it is just business. Um, the internet at the turn of the century was kind of this unknown territory. And we were, or we were about to go through that first dot-com crash. So it was that first realisation that this wasn't the field of dreams, that you had to do more than just build something. And the internet companies, like normal companies, actually needed a business model. And that model was free or freemium? Yeah, uh, as you know, the supposedly free model of the internet is one of my <laughs> pet peeves, um, as we talked a lot towards the end of last year. People have suddenly woken up to the value of their data. And when I say data, what I really mean is the value of themselves. And I think that's probably one of the things that I haven't hyped enough. And it's something that uh, Professor Zubov does brilliantly. Because we see our lives and we see the data we generate as being separate things. Companies that we donate that data to don't necessarily make that distinction. Our lives are their data streams, and that's where the surveillance part comes in. Our lives are a commodity to be searched and stored. But I guess we'll have some more of that after the break. All right. We are the robots. Matt is trying to convince me and anyone listening to this that we are actually the robots. We'll see how far he gets towards the end of the show. Stay tuned. Be right back. BFM 89.9. Bulldozing. Fine measures. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. And we're back. It's Fun Friday. My name is Jasandu, together with Culture Pops, Matt Amatej. I'm not quite sure if Matt is winning this battle, but he's on a mission to convince all of us that we are robots. Apparently, he's halfway through the mission. Now, just before the break, uh, we were talking about the you know the whole business model, free and freemium. So let's go back to that idea, the free and freemium model that we landed just before the break, Matt. Halfway through, you have no idea. This is my mission for 2019. This is the opening salvo. This isn't even a battle. This is a skirmish. Halfway through. Okay, look, when the, when the dot-com crash hit, tech firms had to figure out how to monetize their, their business model. And, of course, one of the models they landed on was the one that we understand today, which is the ad-funded model. So it could equally have been subscription-based, but the model that really chimed with consumers was the idea of getting free stuff. 
because we shouldn't overlook how expensive going online actually was in the early days. The idea of spending all day looking at the internet from your phone was laughable, yeah. partly because of the speed, but mostly because it was cripplingly expensive. I mean, you were literally being charged by the bite. And the last thing people want is when they eventually landed online was to face another round of charges. Yeah, exactly. You didn't want to spend all that money and then pay again for the sites mm, that you landed mm. on. So free services seem to be the answer to everyone's needs. But to make money online, you needed information. So you needed data about the people that you were trying to deliver advertising to. So suddenly we're being sold on this idea of the democratization of information. There's still a point of discussion to be had there, though, like creating that free flow of information that has transformed the way we learn, the knowledge we have access to. Which is why this is just a skirmish. Um, you know, let's let's um, look at something like Wikipedia. For all its faults, it's an incredible undertaking. Uh, being able to look through newspapers and government databases, all of these things that we find online, but that's actually just a very small part of this overall data story. And it's entirely separate from the discussion about how Facebook and Google and hundreds of other companies ended up owning our data. So by portraying the idea of this democracy of data, those companies were also able to assert ownership of the information that we shouldn't forget we generate for them. Mm. But there was no law that said that should or shouldn't be the case. So it's kind of like the gambler at the roulette wheel. You choose a number and throw. Um, they're just chancing their luck. When we push back, when we knock the companies back, they tend to retreat. But they continue to push at the limits of what we will let them get away with. Which is where that idea of naming comes in. Yes, because until we define the system, we can't identify our place or our role in it. Um, it's like that analogy I made last year about the social media model and farming. So the farmer has cows, he milks the cows, he sells the milk to supermarkets and to their customers. So in that model, we think we're the customers, but we're not. We're the cows being milked. <laughs> you know, we've, we're looked after just well enough for the farmer to pull a profit from us. How does this fit in with the idea of surveillance capitalism? Well, first of all, let's look at the surveillance part. So traditionally, we look at surveillance as something that a government or some official body does. But over the last year, we've heard terms like opposition research, um, and these things have kind of come into public knowledge and public consciousness. And it throws kind of harsh light on the fact that companies, uh, I'm not going to use the word spy, but they do keep tabs on people and other institutions. I'll say it's spy. Okay, you say it. <laughs> but we do still tend to think of that um, surveillance in classic spying terms. We don't envisage it as being a trail of data. As a surveillance tool. Well, yeah, companies don't need to be watching and listening to you to know everything that you're doing. Um, they know what you bought for lunch. They know what funny product you just saw in the pharmacy. They know what you're wearing today. They know where you drove to and from, how long you worked out for, what route you took on your jog. You know, they even know from the phrasing of your posts and comments what frame of mind that you're in. And all of that information is neatly geostamped and time-coded. Well, most people don't seem to care. Which is why these definitions are actually so important and why the scions of the digital economy have so little interest in those distinctions being made or that clarity being brought. 
I mean, if you look at it in a different way, let's say my company, Culture Pop, hands you a free notebook when you're at an event or maybe even comes and puts it through your letterbox. You use it to keep a private journal of your actions, your thoughts, your feelings. Then suddenly I pop along and ask to borrow the journals and read them and record them. I can't imagine most people wanting you to know their most intimate secrets. Why? Um, <laughs> what would I use it for? I'm not a bad actor. You know, I'm somebody that you can trust. <clears throat> but then take it a stage further. What if I simply grab that journal and tell you it's mine and that everything in it is mine, that the book was always mine and that I only lent it to you to write in? And that's the world that we've somehow, if not exactly agreed to, they're not actively protested against. And in this version of the world, that lack of protest is actually interpreted as acquiescence. And we started off the show asking the question, whose robot are you? Where does the robot part come in? Well, go back to the farm analogy. So in a surveillance economy, we are a product. So again, we look at the 10-year challenge. Uh, and if you haven't read it yet, please check out Kate O'Neill's insightful piece on the challenge at wired.com. Mm. But for most of us, that challenge was just a fun little exercise. You know, you post a picture of yourself today and another one from 10 years ago. Perfectly harmless, right? But that information, and let's not forget that every piece of data we give away is information. That information can be used to train a facial recognition artificial intelligence. Yeah, but the argument is that if they have access to our, pro our photos and our profiles, can't those machines already draw those parallels? They can, but your online pages are full of noise. Um, think of the number of pictures that a lot of people post. It's multiples a day. How many of those are selfies or other shots that have you in them? You know, most people are not as fastidious as I am about keeping their face offline. What the challenge does, therefore, is shortcut the work to train that machine intelligence. You are choosing two images that you think are a good representation of how you looked then and now. That's an incredible shortcut through all of that noise of thousands of potential images of you and perhaps having to tune out people, maybe relatives who have more than a passing resemblance to you. In other words, we could look at it as if we had just been sent a piece of code and completed a programming request. Yeah, exactly. And you can see that pattern being repeated throughout the hundreds of interactions we have with technology every day. We're being told that technology is there to make our lives easier. And there is some truth to that in certainly a superficial sense. But we are the information and the companies are using us to train and shape the products of tomorrow for them to sell back to us and to other people. It's like having the world's most comprehensive and practically free research and development centre. It still bring us, brings us back to that same question. Why does it matter? Because you have to get your head around the fact that in this new digital world, you are viewed as bytes, a data set, not as a living, breathing, thinking organism. So what sounds like a simple question requires a really long and complicated answer. And everything with you is long and complicated. Well, this is where I get to flash my Douglas Adams card again. Um, you know, in a sense, the answer is simple and seemingly nonsensical. And it's that we are information. But it's like the Douglas Adams answer 42, mm. 
where, when you see that answer, you begin to see how vast and layered the question really was. And that's partly the reason I think that writers like Norton and Zubov and O'Neill are shining a light on this area. So let's flash back to those politicians asking Mark Zuckerberg and Sundar Pichai questions last year. The questions were mostly relevant because the politicians had no frame of reference with which to pose them. You were looking at people living in alternate realities. They're using the same words, but they're using them to speak very different languages. But it does come back to that idea of the kind of society we want to live in. Yeah, you know, you can't make those decisions without defining what the society is going to be. So this week there was a story that Microsoft would be making $500 million available to provide affordable housing in Seattle. Because one of the curses of the technology industry is that they move into livable cities. Um, and then those cities become unlivable and unaffordable as a result of the distortion that their presence creates. So on the face of it, it's a really nice story. Microsoft gives back to the city it calls home. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a feel-good story. And also it's a, it's a kudos to Microsoft for doing it, right? Exactly. But as some pundits have pointed out, it's not a gift. It's an investment. That money will essentially be in the form of loans and building property that will turn the investment company that's doing it on Microsoft's behind it, it will turn them a profit. So one article also pointed out that the investment vehicle being used actively blocked attempts by the uh, uh, city council to enact a small tax on local companies, a tax that would probably have raised the city much more than that $500 million in revenue from all of the companies taxed within the city limits. But it's still a choice people should make for themselves. So, yeah, if you want to live in a society where companies are responsible providing uh, public services, by all means, select that option. By defining the system, you can do that. You're deciding to place your trust and faith in a private company that is responsible to a board and shareholders and not to you. You're preferring to place that trust in them over elected officials whose job it is to represent and protect you. Now, I don't agree with that choice, but at least arm yourself with the knowledge that allows you to make it. But don't lose sight of the fact that the system is a machine and that at best you're a robot, you're an automaton carrying out a subroutine. Mm, I don't know about you, but I think Matt is slightly winning this battle, though, because I do <laughs> feel like a, maybe I am just a robot. Not a very good robot as well. I haven't even got to the mind control part. <laughs> oh dear, let's not go there. Also, Geekswalks will be next after this, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.